Good and gracious God, we thank you so much that you have given us the body with Christ as our head to join in fellowship and worship of you. Lord, as we gather in this place today and we hear from your holy word, I pray that our hearts and eyes would be open to receive what it is that you want to speak. And God, not only would our eyes and hearts be open to receive, but Lord, we would be set aflame, that the, the, the flame of our hearts would be fanned into a bonfire of worship of you. And so, Lord, lead through the power of your Holy Spirit as only you can, because I am nothing but a mere vessel. And I pray that you would make much of yourself and very little of me. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've already stated, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles with you, or if you want to grab a pew Bible so you can read and follow along with the text, why don't you go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 4. And I've mentioned that this is my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And you might be thinking, how can you pick one in all of Scripture to choose Uh, Well, I'll get into that a little bit later in the message, but just know that this has been one of the most transformative texts for me in my walk with the Lord. And before we start diving into the text and before we read it in its entirety, I want to go to a couple words from some great evangelical authors. The the first is A.W. Tozer. Then he says this, he says, worship is the missing jewel in modern evangelicalism. Worship is the missing jewel in modern evangelicalism. And theologian Timothy George says, uh, the note of God's grandeur, greatness, and glory that so fills the Bible is noticeably missing. And he's specifically talking about theology, but I think that can apply in churches as well, that we are noticeably missing the grandeur, the greatness, and the glory of God that fills every page of the Bible. And so I want to give a little example as well. I was sharing recently with my aunt when I was in Ohio visiting family a couple weeks ago, There's this one park that my grandmother always took us grandchildren to called Sharon Woods. And Sharon Woods had this indoor kind of playground. And when I was a kid, this was the place to go when you went to visit grandma. As we couldn't wait for the moment that she would take us to Sharon Woods to play on the indoor playground. And then afterward, we would go to the root beer stand for some root beer. It was always the most exciting thing to do. And I remember as a kid about how grand this place was when I went. It was impressive. It was so fun. It was so cool. The playground was shaped like a tree house, and even though it was indoors, you still felt, kind of felt outdoors, and it had foliage and these rope ladders, and it was just the coolest place. And I just remember as a kid about how big it was. And then I went back and visited as an adult, and I was like, wow, this place is tiny. I can't believe how many kids are able to run around in this place because it felt no bigger than one of the McDonald's playhouses. Like, it was small. 
But that started to get me thinking how it is when Jesus said that we need to have faith like a child, that as a child we experience God in this kind of grandeur and awe that as adults we start to lose. We start to lose the grandeur of who God is as we age because we can read for ourselves who God is. We can start to understand Scripture maybe a little bit better, and we think that our intellectual understanding of God replaces the awe and wonder and mystery that we had as children. And so I think when A.W. Tozer and Timothy George say that something is missing in the church, particularly speaking about us as adults, it's that we have lost a little bit of understanding the splendorous reality of who God is. And my hope for all of us today is that as we read through Revelation chapter 4, we get some of that splendorous wonder back of who God is. Because I think of any passage in Scripture, chapter 4 in Revelation can establish us in this grand nature of the king. And so let's hear these words in Revelation chapter 4. <laughs> this is so good. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon those thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads." And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature like a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them had six wings, <clears throat> are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they exist and were created. Oof, so good. Such rich depth of imagery. And here's the thing. We are now stepping into a new vision, a new section of Revelation. Revelation is actually seven 
parts. There's seven different visions that John has, and each one is almost a capitulation, a recapturing of something that's already been said. He's giving us different perspectives of the same thing. And so here we begin with our first. In chapters 1 through 3, we were on earth talking about earthly things. And in chapter 4, we now ascend to heaven and start talking about heavenly things. And that's what's so exciting to me about Revelation is that there's just so much going on that God wants to show and reveal to us. But I think that there is nothing more important than us starting in chapter 4 because it sets the tone and the foundation for everything that we read going forward. If we don't have a solid footing in chapter 4, then we can't understand what's happening in chapter 5, 6, 7 through 22. We cannot. And so we have to start with the solid ground that is Revelation chapter 4. And so let's dive in so I don't waste any more of our time. We start in verse 1, and the first thing we see is it says that after these things I looked. And oftentimes we might hear that, we might think chronologically that all of Revelation is now going to happen in chronological order, that everything is going to be revealed as history will unfold. But what we need to understand is that when we hear after these things, what we're actually hearing is that we're going into a new perspective, a new recapitulation, a new understanding of what's already been known or seen. And we're going to see how right here after these things is actually referring to after John received the letters, now he's receiving something else that must be revealed to the church. And so after these things moves us from earth into heaven. And it says, look, I looked and behold. I know we've talked about it before, but whenever we see that word behold, it should capture our attention. We should be like, we need to look with the eyes that John is looking with to see what he sees. It, it requires the imaginative creativity that God instilled with us when he created us in his image and his likeness. The same creator God gave us the ability to imagine the very things that he now is revealing to us in this book of Revelation and then John says, behold, a door standing open in heaven. A door standing open in heaven. And so we need to behold the door that is opened to John. Now this is a door open specifically to John for this revelation. But we also need to understand that there is a door open to us as well to receive what it is that God has for us in each and every one of our lives, in our own experience with God, in our own experience with being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it reminds me of John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Verses 7 through 9, and it doesn't look like I marked it in my Bible, so bear with me as I turn to it as quickly as I can. In John chapter 10, 
in verse 7, it says this. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them because I am the door. And if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Let us be reminded that Jesus is our door to experience God, our door to know the Father, to know what it is that God has for each and every one of us in our lives, in our purposes. There is a door open for each and every one of us, and I know that all too often we think that the door to God is closed that the door to knowing him isn't open before us. But for everyone that knows Jesus, that door is standing wide open. All you have to do is be willing to go through it. Just as when Jesus knocks on your door so that you can open it and let him in, so Jesus then becomes the open door that grants all of us Consistent access to God. Consistent access to heaven. Consistent access to the throne. And you might be thinking, well, this is a really unique experience for John. He's even caught up in the Spirit. Verse 2 says, immediately I was in the Spirit. In the Spirit, John is having something completely unique and different from what I could possibly have. I disagree. Acts chapter 2 reminds us, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male slaves and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will put wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is an open door to all of us to experience God in a powerful and unique and humbling way. Can you not imagine the humbling nature that John was experiencing in this moment as he was caught up to heaven and invited to come into the door and to hear the voice of Jesus? Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, I want to share... I was debating whether or not to share this because it's personal. And it might be different. It might not be something that you've ever heard before come from anybody, for that matter. But the reason that this passage is so special to me, is so important, was so formative in my walk with God, is that it was this passage that I heard those very words of Jesus to come up here, and I had my own experience like John had. 
I don't know whether it was in-body, out-of-body experience, but I was one day praying. I was at a, a camp, and I was praying to the Lord, and I was reading this, this chapter. And it was in that moment that I felt that I myself was caught up to see what it was that John saw. It was a work of the Holy Spirit for me to experience this great and wondrous place. But it was also so incredibly crushing. Because it was for the first time that I really understood what it meant to know that God was holy and to know that God was full of glory. I could not stand in his presence. I could do nothing but fall on my face and be prostrate before him. And I'll talk a little bit more about what I saw in that as we work through the passage, but it was the most transformative moment of my life, but it required me to know that there was a door open for me as well. And there is a door that is open for you. And so the Lord said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. And that must is important because must implies that it has already been designed and predestined and foretold that there is one in whom there is an outworking of his divine will in all of creation. Then he is the sovereign, supreme creator. And so this is not things that might take place. These are things that must take place. We have to start viewing God as a must God, not a might God. He is not a God that says one thing and then does another. He is a God that says what he means and then does it. He is a God who must fulfill all things as he has set them in place. Let us believe that this God is the God that we serve and that he is supremely sovereign in all things. And so we move on into chapter 2. And what's so significant about chapter 2 is that then John says, behold again. And what does he behold? A throne standing in heaven. And there is one sitting on that throne. You know, John uses the word throne more than anybody else in the New Testament. In fact, the word throne occurs 62 times in the New Testament, and John, in his book of Revelation, uses it 47 times. He's over two-thirds of all the uses of the word throne in Scripture. And I think the reason is significant because the throne is the place that God is sitting upon, but the people at the time would be all too familiar with the throne that Caesar sat upon where he used it for his evil, selfish, maniacal, tyrannical means. But John wants to offer a different view of the throne than of earthly kings. He wants to offer the view of the throne of a heavenly king who sits far greater and is far better than any king we can imagine on earth. And I think that when we read that, we have to understand that in our own context. We don't have kings, but we certainly have leaders in our lives that we think might be doing things less than ideal. 
We have to trust that in all things, that regardless of what is happening in society around us, whether there are rulers or powers or principalities acting in their own means, God still sits on his throne. And if we become a people that are kingdom-minded, heavenly set, then we can remind ourselves again and again and remember that God's on his throne. I don't have to worry about the thrones in this world. I don't have to worry about the choices being made in this country, the church choices being made in other countries. I can trust that God must make all things happen in his plan and time. And he is good in all of his plans for all time. He sits on his throne. It is the throne above all thrones. No earthly king can even step foot before him. It is so good. And he is so right. And he is so holy. That is our king. And then John begins to describe this throne. He said he was one like sitting, jasper stone, sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. John is probably in some ways alluding to Ezekiel chapter 1 when Ezekiel has this same throne room experience. Ezekiel says in chapter 1, 26 through 28, Now above the expanse that there was over their heads, there was something in the likeness of a throne, like sapphire stone in appearance, and upon the likeness of the throne, high up was the likeness of one with the appearance of man. And then I saw from the appearance of his loins upward something like a gleam of glowing metal and the appearance of of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like the appearance of fire and there was radiance all around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so was the appearance of the radiance all around. Such was like appearance of likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And I saw this and I fell on my face and heard a sound of a voice speaking. Does that not just take your breath away? It is appearance that is actually quite indescribable. They did their best, but it still does not compare, I am sure, to what it was. It is an absolutely indescribable majesty that John and Ezekiel had the privilege to see. But what I want us to really focus on is maybe not the interpretation of all the gems and their colors and what they might mean because it could mean so many things. What I think is significant is the mention of the rainbow in both. Especially as, Paul, as John writes to people that are struggling and suffering and wondering how evil has become so corrupt in the world But if we remember the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9 when he set the rainbow in the sky and it was God's covenant to never flood the earth again. Could the people be worried as wickedness prevails? Is God going to wipe us all out? And remember 
what God said to Noah, he said, when I see it, I will remember my promise that I made to you. Well, how often does God see it? It's ever set before him. And so what is God's primary function toward humanity? Mercy. It's his mercy towards us. And so as we read this passage, we have to understand, again, I said this is foundational stuff. Everything we read in Revelation going forward finds its foundation in chapter 4. And so not only should we be viewing God as the one who sits upon the throne, the one that makes all things must come true, but he's also the one who has mercy ever before him. And so we need to read the rest of Revelation through the eyes of a merciful God who sends mercy upon his children, not wrath. And so he has the rainbow ever before him. And then, I love where we go next. And then around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now there's a lot of speculation about who these elders are. Are they man do they represent, or is it the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs and the 12 apostles? Is it some other representation of the priests? Because there were 24 priests in concourse in the Old Testament. Or are they angelic beings sitting before the throne? It could be any of those, Sure. But I think there's one thing that we can definitely say for sure is that whoever they are, they represent humanity before the throne of God. Whether they are men themselves or they are angels, they represent us before the very throne of God. But what I want to focus on is that first word, around. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And you see, this is really significant because this is one of the few things that I distinctly remember when I had my own experience with this chapter. At first, when I read this passage, I had this, you know, image of any kind of kingly court where the throne sits, you know, at the very front of the room. And then maybe you have some nobles in court with the king and their thrones kind of go down the sides of the aisle. And anyone that can enter has to walk past all the other noblemen before they approach the king's throne. And maybe your imagination's already gone to where it should have. But this is what the Lord showed me, is in fact, there is one throne that sits at the center and is encircled by all the thrones of the, of the elders. That way, at no time, when an elder is sitting on their throne, are their eyes ever diverted from the king. Their eyes are always centered on him. They never divert their gaze from the one who is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Because he, as we will see, is the only one worthy of worship. And so, 
these elders are encircled around the throne of God. And out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We've already talked about the seven spirits, but imagine for a moment that you are in this place and there is thunder and lightning erupting from the throne of God. It's not that the throne is erupting them, it's that God himself is like thunder and lightning. Remember back in Exodus chapter 19 where God descends upon Mount Sinai. How does he descend? In peals of thunder and lightning. It should strike awe and fear into our hearts that God wields such unimaginable power. And as John enters before this court of God, God erupts in thunderous voice. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The sea of glass, I couldn't tell you what that is, what it looks like. Except that in my understanding and experience, the 24 elders kind of make up this encircling place where God's in the center and the sea of glass goes from the throne to the elders. And to enter into that place where you breach from behind the thrones of the elders and into what I have only come to understand as the holy of holies. The throne room of God is set up just like the holy of holies in the temple. And to enter into that space is to enter into God's ultimate holiness. And so that sea of glass, the sea often is a tumultuous thing throughout Scripture. But here it's a complete calm. And yet it completely separates that which is holy and most holy from those that are not. It's impassable. It is an impassable space that is only reserved for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's that holy that there is a sea of glass that we cannot pass. And then you have these creatures these angels that are around the throne that have eyes all around them. Well, just like the elders that are always have their eyes on God, so too do these creatures always have eyes on God. No matter which way they turn, they have eyes upon him. And then the eyes that aren't upon him are upon his creation. And so you always have angels looking over creation itself while also looking at the Father who dictates his will to them as they need to execute that which happens upon earth. Even Jesus said, I do not do on my own will, but I do everything that I see my Father doing in heaven. 
And as angels are meant to be ministers to mankind, so these angels see God, see his will, and then see creation and execute God's will upon that creation. But they also serve another purpose because as they day and night, we're down in verse 8, cannot cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The thrice holy Lord of lords, King of kings, is to be worshipped and praised unceasingly. Usually when you hear a word twice, it's trying to emphasize that holiness, right? But when you hear the word three times repeated, the thrice holy king, it is a holiness that goes beyond the limits of holiness. It is an untouchable infinite holiness that only belongs to one, God. It only belongs to God. There is no one else that will ever be holy, 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 except God himself. And so this is actually echoing what Isaiah saw in his throne room experience. So So far, we have three people in the Bible that have had these experiences. I just want to make that clear that it's not unusual once. It's not unusual twice. It's not even unusual three times. But here's what Isaiah says in his experience, verses 1 through 3. And in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called out and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wow. There must be something to it. There must be something to it. If Isaiah is hearing this song before the Lord and John is hearing this song before the Lord, this is a holy, holy, holy God. And let us remind ourselves, holy is translated for us, but the word is understood to mean set apart, completely separate, completely different other than there is no one like God is the most separate of all things because he is nothing like creation. He is nothing like creation. And so these four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. And then the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and they will cast their crowns before the throne. Whether these are men or angels, it does not matter the thrones that they have upon their heads, which we are reminded that we also receive when we have overcome, right? We were reminded in those letters that we've read that we too will get the crowns of victory. And yet those crowns of victory mean nothing when you stand in the presence of God. 
It's like the words of Paul when he said in Philippians, I will count all things as loss to know Christ my King. And when you stand before God, you will count all things as loss to see God forever seated upon his throne. You will long to give your worship to him and know that whatever he has given you is nothing compared to what you want to give back to him. Can we restore the splendor and awe of worship to a God that is so worthy? Because he's worthy. Because what do the elders sing? They sing, worthy are you. It's not just worship, it's worth-ship. He's worth the worship. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Praise be to the God who sits upon his throne, who makes all things happen according to his will. If anything exists, it was to his will. If anything was created, it was because of his power and his imaginative work. All things created. This isn't just simply a God that we think about in passing. This isn't simply a God that we show up on Sunday because we feel like we have to or because it makes us feel good to be here. No, this is a God worthy of all of our worship because there is no one more splendorous, more sovereign, more righteous, more holy, more just, more merciful, more graceful than he. When we were children and we might have heard about God for the first time, we were in awe because the mystery eluded us. But then we grew up. And that sense of wonder was lost on us. Let us restore the splendor of our King within our hearts, to see God for who he is, so that when we gather to worship, we want to fall prostrate before him, throwing down our crowns at his feet and saying, holy, 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 worthy are you, O Lord, of all honor and glory and power. Amen. Good and gracious God, lead our hearts to you. Bring us back to awe and wonder. Bring us back to the grandeur of who you are. God, that though this passage is filled with images and signs of who else is present in the throne room, the reality is, is that the throne room's about you and that their presence is about you. For their eyes never divert from you. Their gaze is always upon you. And they long to unceasingly worship you. And so, Lord, let us, too, step through the open door that you have granted to us through Jesus Christ, your Son, that we may worship your holy name and that we may worship the splendorous King. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.